like to welcome everyone to our midweek here at Coopville Church of Christ. We're thankful for our visitors, everybody that's came out to be with us tonight. We're in our summer series, and tonight we have Jonathan Burns that's come out to be with us. I want to give you an intro on Jonathan here to tell you a little bit about him. Uh, he's been preaching in various roles since 2006. He's a graduate from Tennessee Technological University, 2011, and the Memphis School of Preaching in 2013. Jonathan is married to Kelly, who is with him here tonight, and they have two sons, Charlie and Colson. He has served three congregations in Tennessee and one in Mississippi. He's on the executive board of the Short Mountain Bible Camp and is the minister at the Finley Church of Christ. Jonathan actively participates in gospel meetings and lectureships and mission trips in various parts of the United States, including Singapore, the Philippines, and Malaysia. Jonathan operates digital mission work, which has a goal of making video, audio, digital and print resources for the Lord's Church. I know one of those things that he does is mapping. They've got into doing mapping, and quite a few of our ladies in the Bible classes are interested in that, and they were talking to him before service here, so they'll, they'll get that. A couple more things about Jonathan he doesn't have in his bio that he knows is he loves mudding. I know he had a mud buggy. You still got that? Still got it. Loves to get out and hit the mud holes and, and sling mud and have fun. And uh, He and Kelly have just bought a house, and they're in the midst of a remodel, so if you ask them about it, they'll, you'll get the, oh, yeah late nights and, and all that. So I tell that about him is you, you read this bio and he's, he's a preacher through and through, but preachers are people too. And I wanted you to hear about the mud, the mud bogging and you know they're remodeling a house. And when he stands before you tonight to preach, um, because the preacher can deliver the kind of lesson that he's gonna to deliver to us, don't forget they're people too. So I think that's a good thing to know. Jonathan has a good pulpit presence and he has a good preaching voice. So we're excited to have him with us. I won't take any more of his time. And Jonathan, it's your... Well, good evening. Hope everybody's doing well this evening. I appreciate that introduction. I'll pay you your money you're owed after it's over tonight. <laughs> but I appreciate I do have an off-road truck. I have a lime green Ford Explorer uh, that's put on big 37 and a half inch mud tires. And we've had some fun with that over the years. And Kelly and I are currently in the middle of a house renovation. And how that's going is, hmm. So we have gutted that house from ceiling to floor, and we are back in the put-together stage. And I found out today, uh, this morning I taught a class at 10 a.m. at Finley, and I found out today I've got bruises up and down my arm that I don't know what are fault from, and boy, they are sore. We're laying hardwood floors, so it's been a good process for us, and we've had an enjoyable time with that as we go through. What do you think about a Bible passage that we all need to consider? We need to consider Saul before we ever consider David. And we see a time where Saul had walked away from the ways that God would have him to walk. And he lived in a way that God would not approve of. And he did things that God would not approve of. And we learn in 1 Samuel 13, 14, his kingdom was not going to continue. In other words, your rule and your reign as king, Saul, it's over. And God tells Saul in this particular segment that he has already chosen a replacement, and that placement or replacement was going to be David. And the more and more you study about David, the more and more you kind of start to like the guy. You see him in his younger years doing as his father would have him to do, and he was going to do this and checking on this, and he was following commandments. You see him in his early days, probably one of the most notable things that people think about David, David and Goliath. Father sent him to go check on the brothers and send some supplies down to the brothers and the other soldiers. And his brothers kind of turned on him. You're just here to see what's going on. You're just here to figure out what's taking place. But he was the only one 
Matter of fact, the text tells us there in the scenes of David and Goliath that Saul, David's brothers, and all the other men of Israel, as they stood there seeing this giant, their knees shook. It scared them so much. But David, in essence, says, if God be with us, who can be against us was the essence of his scenes. And you have this idea of David who followed God. But just like Saul, just like me, just like you, David was not perfect. We also read something that's very interesting when it comes to the life of David. We don't think about it very often. It's in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, specifically in verse 6. It's that last part that's really of interest to us because we learn that Jesse begot David, David begot Solomon, but notice by who? By her whom, he had, by her whom had been the wife of Uriah. Probably the second most notable thing between David and his life was David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba. Don't know why we don't call it David and Uriah. Because the true tragedy comes in the form of Uriah. We'll see that in just a moment as we walk together and as we study together. But what we're doing in our scenes of our study tonight is we are getting ourselves to the segment, maybe... This always happens to me, by the way. We've just spent six months at Finley trying to figure out why clickers don't click when I click them, and now I've found somewhere else clickers don't click. Is it, red or green on the side? it is green. Can I just say next times two? Should take us to a slide that says something about David. One more there. There we go. We're talking about David, and we're following along with him as we think about his life. And here's what I want you to do in the next slide. I want you to see four different things tonight as we think about David and we think about this word, murder. I want us to see David the man. Let's get to know him a little bit better. Let's see who he was. Let's see what happened in his life. I want us to see the moment. There's a defining moment in the life of David, and I want us to ask this question. Why did that take place? Were there any markers that showed us something in David's life where he should have known how to make this decision, the moment? Then I want you to see the mess, and this is where we're going to meet Uriah. We're going to be introduced into a man who has honor, a man who has integrity, a man who is brought back home from war, and he wouldn't even go home. He stayed where the king's servants were because he did not feel that he had the right to go home when all the other men of war were at war. Then what I want you to see is the meanings. And when the meanings, I want us to look at things that we can learn that will help us and help us focus on what we should be doing and how we should be living in our lives. We'll see two main moments that exist in the life of David. I think it's working now. All right, great. Two main moments that exist in the life of David. Number one, I just want you to think about David and Goliath. Here's a young man who believed in God, who trusted in God, and he stands before a giant, and he was victorious. But I want you to think about David and Bathsheba as well. You see a man who visually sees something that was not intended for him to see, who visually sees something of which he should have turned his eyes away, yet due to lust, he could not turn his eyes away. Here's some interesting things about David as you think about him. He won that great battle with David and Goliath there. But we also see him as we think about his life. Until this moment, David has never lost a battle. He's never been beaten in, in battle. He's never been destroyed or victoryless. He's always went to battle and he's always won. 
Now, I'm not talking about the battlefield tonight that Uriah was standing on. I'm talking about David, who is at home when he should have been at war, and he's about to lose, and he's not even standing on the battlefield. Until this time, David has not lost a battle. That time is just now starting as you and I are thinking about what's taking place. My question for us tonight as we think about David as a man, I want to think about the question of when did these things begin? I want you to go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. And we're going to go to a couple of places tonight together. We're going to go to 2 Samuel 5, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. We're going to go over to the book of Matthew, and then when we come to the close of our class tonight, we're going to go to 1 John and see some things. But 2 Samuel chapter 5, and I want you to notice verse 12. 2 Samuel 5 verse 12. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the people's sake. So here is God. David has been chosen as the successor. David is now running into this position of authority, and he knows that God has exalted him, but God is focusing, the latter part of verse 12, on his people. I want us to learn one thing tonight in this particular segment when looking at David the man that has nothing to do with David. God always cares for his people. God cared so much for his people in this scene that he was concerned about them. The direction they were going was not right for them. And therefore, Saul has been replaced by David. You'll also remember that David, from the time the people of the city sung that song about Saul and David and David killing his ten thousands and Saul becoming jealous, you'll remember that David so far has kept his heart upon God. Isn't that what we're trying to do? We're trying to keep our lives and our minds and our focus on what we should be in this life. And David here, he knows he's been put into a position of power. But what happens when people are put into a position of power? Problems come. Problems arise. And what's interesting to me, in 2 Samuel 5, uh, 12, comes 2 Samuel 5, verse 13. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. After he had come from Hebron, also sons and daughters were born to David. It's from the beginning that David begins to have problems. But these problems are not going to be realized for some time because David's going to go into several segments of life and David is going to be successful and David's even going to be called a man after God's own heart. However, David had some problems of which he had to face. David was one in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 9, that we read that he went on and became great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. God was with David. Now, unfortunately, just like you and just like me, David was not always with God. David had some defining moments coming to him, and we're going to see those defining moments together. But we have David, who's been put into this position of authority. He's been put into this position of which he needed to lead God's people. And there he was as the man. And the first thing that he did, remember this, the first thing he did is he took on more wives and more concubines. Keep that in your mind. We'll need that here in just a few minutes. Because what's going to take place together as we look at this particular scene? We move from the man and we go to the moment. Go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And I want you to recognize with me what's taking place in 2 Samuel chapter 11. The moment of which is coming to us has to do with Uriah. But before we ever get to Uriah, we have to get to the point where Uriah's at battle. 
It's 2 Samuel chapter 11, specifically verse 1. Here's what we read. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and all his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. I want you to see something. Here is a time when all the kings went to war. I want to ask you a question. Where's David? All the kings go to war. Where's David? He's sitting at home. All the kings went to war. Who did David send in his place? He sent Joab with him, and he sent specific instructions and evidently had some way to communicate with Joab to keep information flowing from where David was and where David was supposed to be. So you have David who sent his people, Israel, into war, and he's not there. Remember that as we go through our lesson together because David should have been somewhere else. But he chose to stay at home. Here's the moment. Now, why is that significant? It's significant to you and I because as we make our way to verse 2, something happens to David that's probably happened to you. Have you ever been at home, maybe late at night, and you woke up? And you laid there for a long time, and eventually you got up. Now, one of two places we will go when we get up. We will either, A, go to the recliner, and what will we do? Y'all know what that button does, don't you? There it goes. Or we will, number two, go to that refrigerator and we'll just stand there and we'll just gaze at what we're going to do because we are so awake we can't go back to sleep. Here is David. And it happened to be on this evening, David arises from his bed and he walked to the roof of the king's house. Evidently, this is the place that David went when he could not sleep. He went to the roof of his house and probably from there was a very significant fact. He could probably see more of the country than anyone else. And there he was, able to see all these things that in normality were simple and regular and everyday. But it just so happened that on this particular evening, when David was not where he was supposed to be, remember he sent Joab and all of Israel, but he remained behind. It just happened when he could not sleep he gets up and he goes to the rooftop. And while he was on the rooftop of the king's house, he saw a woman bathing. And the text tells us at the end of verse 2 that this woman was very beautiful. Now I want you to remember something. When David was informed that he was brought into the kingship of Israel, you remember from verse 12 down to verse 13 of that segment, what did he do? He took more wives. He took more concubines. David had a problem of lust. It was a very underlying tone that took place. And almost, if you read that segment where David ascended to power, you might miss it because David's king. And sometimes that's all we focus on. But David had a problem way back when. And now as years have gone by, as he has led his people to victory, he has began to be relaxed. He is comfortable. He is sitting back. The kingdom is running smooth. Joab's doing what I need to do. And I'm just here on my roof overlooking everything. And then all of a sudden, what was not intended for him was right in the front of his view. Now I suggest to you that in 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel 11, 12, this was an innocent occurrence. He wasn't meant to see her, and she wasn't meant to be seen by him. But it happened. Here's the truth. It happened. Now David had some choices to make. 
We've not even gotten to murder yet, have we? And David already has choices to make. What could David have done when he went onto that rooftop and he saw? Well, David could have went back inside, couldn't he? A rather simple thing to walk yourself back inside. He could have went inside. David could have turned around. David could have shouted out, I can see you. I bet you that would have scared her to death, don't you think? She thought she was safe. Probably the routine of her to bathe at this time due to the environment. But yet David locked eyes. And the text tells us that this woman was very beautiful to behold. Now David could have left it at that, couldn't he? But David didn't. You read in verse 3 of 2 Samuel 11, verse 3. So David inquired about the woman. He asked about her. And someone said, is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife, don't miss that word, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Where's Uriah? Uriah is where David's supposed to be. Uriah is following Joab of whom David has commanded. Uriah is right where he's supposed to be. We'll see this in a few moments, but Uriah was one of David's mighty men of war or mighty men of valor. He's right where he's supposed to be. He has integrity. He has honor. He's serving his people. He's serving his God. But here is David, right where he does not belong. Who is she? Isn't that Uriah's wife? You know what David could have done right here? Oh, she's married. Even remembering that some time ago, he's already taken more wives and concubines than any other already. David had a problem with lust. He could have stopped here. He could have found out that was who she was and that was the end of that. But verse 4, we learn that David did not stop there. He sent messengers to her. He brought her to him and they spent the evening together. And the most baffling part of all of these things, after she returns to her house, we learn inside of verse 5 that she comes to David and she says these words, I am with child. By the way, if you don't know what happened in verse 4, you know in verse 5 what happened in verse 4. That hasn't changed since then, and it had not changed since before then. The natural way of bringing about future human beings in this world has not changed. Still hasn't changed. Time has taken place here, by the way, from verse 4 to verse 5. Most likely about 30 days, if you'll think about how this actually works in the scientific way, in the way it works in the life cycle, about 30 days have passed, and she now realizes... I know what's happened. There was that night. I know what's happened. My husband's on the battlefield, but I'm at home. My husband's on the battlefield, but David, he is at home. And verse 4 probably rang true in her minds. There was a moment a moment of which she and a moment of which David, they knew what had taken place. You may be asking, well, what's this got to do with murder? Just hold with me a few minutes and you and I will find out. Go with me to Matthew 15. I want you to see a few things that would have helped David to know. They help us to know. I want you to see Matthew 15. I want you to see verse 10. Matthew 15, 10 through 20. Then we're going to go to Matthew 5. Then we're going to go to Matthew 18 and see these things pulled together. But in Matthew 15, 
We read these words, beginning at verse 10. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand. This is Jesus, and I want you to listen to the words that Jesus uses. Three, hear and understand. Do you know what Jesus is doing in this moment? He's leaning forward and saying, Y'all don't miss this. This is the important statement. He's, he's telling them, whatever you miss, don't miss this next phrase. And this is what he says. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth defiles a man. Then keep reading. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Matter of fact, as you follow this down, and you'll see Peter rebuttal Jesus. He says, explain this to us. Peter, you don't get it yet. Sometimes we're just like Peter and we go, what's that mean? And we know what that means. And maybe Peter hoped that it didn't mean what it meant, but it always means what it means, doesn't it? So Jesus explains it to him. He says, are you still without understanding? Don't you know? He says, do you not understand, verse 17, that whatever enters the mouth goes in the stomach and is eliminated? But those which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. Here's the truth tonight. In this moment, the heart of David, and don't miss this, the heart of Bathsheba were corrupt. That moment, though it started by accident, he went to his rooftop. She followed her probably normal routine and it had never happened before, but here it did. And when he called for her, number one, he called for her, but number two, she came. Both knowing she was a married woman. What's in the heart, ladies and gentlemen, is going to come out in life. And evidently there was a problem in the heart of these two individuals. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 5. Let's learn something that Jesus has taught that's very complicated. Matthew 5, picking up in verse 27. Matthew 5, 27. Jesus in this occasion says, You have heard that it was said of, these, of those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Now pause with me there. Isn't that great advice? That's great advice, folks. Don't commit adultery. And Jesus says, You've heard it from a long time not to do this. Keep reading what he says, verse 28. But I say to you, whosoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it away from you. What's Jesus saying? Well, read with me verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and, and, and cast it far from you. Is Jesus telling you to pluck out your eye? Cut off your hand? What's he telling you? Eliminate Sources of temptation and sin where? In your life. Me, in my life. Would it not have been great if David had just remembered to eliminate temptation out of his life? What's interesting to me is Matthew chapter 5 is connected to adultery. Go with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, notice with me verses 7 and 8. Jesus again talks to us about what we need to do in our lives. He says in verse 7, Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to man by whom offenses come. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it away. Twice now, Jesus has said, get these problems out of your life. Verse 9, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. What's the point? The same point that he's already made through all of these segments in the book of Matthew, 
When there is temptation, get it out of your life. What was the giant that slew David? Lust. Now what in the world does that have to do with murder? Well, you've got the man and you have the moment. You have a man who's followed God, but he's starting to stray away, and now he's in the point where he has extremely strayed away. And she came to him and said, I am with child. You have the man, you have the moment, you have next, the mess. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 11 of which we turn our attention back to because we need to be reunited with Uriah. David's already heard about Uriah, and David, as we'll see as we go through this, has known about Uriah has known about who he is and has known about what he could do on the battlefield. He's one of his mighty men. But it happens in 2 Samuel 11, verse 11, that as David has sent for Uriah, verse 8, brought him here, put him into his house, said in verse 8, I'll bring you dinner and here's you a gift basket. Go back to your house. We learn about Uriah, verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. How many of us would have went home? after being at battle. But Uriah, this man of utmost integrity, this man of following the Lord, he knew where he belonged and he knew he needed to be back at that battlefield. He's been called back and under the premise of give me a report. Well, that's convenient, isn't it? No one has ever been brought back from the battlefield inside of Scripture to give the king a report and then he got a gift basket to go home with. Something was up. I don't know if Uriah knew that or not, but it seems to us that something is up. So he sleeps at the door of the king's house. And, and David asked in verse 10, why did you not go home? In verse 11, the latter part of the verse tells us, as you live and so your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Why? Verse 1, where's the king supposed to be? At the battlefield. Where's the soldier supposed to be? At the battlefield, serving God and serving God's people. And Uriah says, I won't do this thing. You know what Uriah is telling King David? You might do it, but I'm not going to. Boy, what a position to be Uriah, and boy, what a thing that takes place. Now, we learn a little bit about David and Uriah's relationship as we go through various parts of Scripture. Passages like 2 Samuel 23, verse 8 and verse 39. In that list of some of his mighty men here in 2 Samuel, there is Uriah. In the book of Chronicles, in 1 Chronicles 11, 10, or in 11, 10 and verse 41, you learn about Uriah, who is one of David's mighty men. David knew Uriah. And Uriah knew David. I mightily will suggest to you tonight that they not only knew each other, they most likely were friends. They weren't just acquaintances. But sin has this power to blind. And I remind you of what has taken place. Bathsheba came to David and said, I am with child. David's caught. David's ploy to control the situation because he knew he could control it. And he knew if he could bring Uriah back home, she would go home. And, and he knew that he had this fixed, but Uriah was a man of valor. I will not do this thing. Now David's in a real problem. Now David's got a real issue on his hand. He tries, as we read these things, to do more for Uriah, but Uriah would not do them. Why? Because Uriah knew where he belonged. I want to ask you a question tonight that I want to ask myself a question. 
Do we know where we belong? That may be the hardest question to answer tonight. Do we know where we belong? I'm not asking you if you belong in church. You know that. I'm not asking you if you are a husband, do you know how to lead your family? I'm not asking if you're a wife, do you know how to take care of you? I'm not asking you those questions. Do you know where you belong? In other words, do you know where you don't belong? Because David didn't know. Uriah knew. Uriah knew where he belonged. And David just thought he could fix this and he could take this down. But verse 9 tells us he wouldn't even go home. This is the mess that's taken place. And as you follow this out, you'll, you'll learn in verses 10 and 11 that when this wouldn't happen, you read verse 10, so they went and told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house. And, and David sent to Uriah and said, why, why did you go and why didn't you do this? And I will not do this thing. What an impressive man. But I want you to see something that takes place in verses 14 and 15 because here's David He's come up with the solution. In the morning, after more things have transpired, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. Now, I remind you of some things by way of question. Where is Joab? He's leading the battle. Where is David? Where he doesn't belong. Where is Uriah? He's still with David. So in this morning, David writes a letter to Joab, and I want you to listen to this next phrase of verse 14, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Now we get to learn, Uriah doesn't know this, we get to learn what David wrote. Not word for word, line by line, but we get the understanding of what David wrote inside of verse 15. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah at the forefront of the hottest battle. Pause with me there. You think that one was an easy one? You think that's the one everybody wanted to be in? Set him at the hottest, put him in the midst of the most danger. What do I do next, David? And retreat from him, that he may be struck down, and listen to this last word, and die. What was in the heart of David? the murder of Uriah. But listen to this. Let me say it a little bit differently. What was in the heart of David? The covering up of David's sins. Why did Uriah die? Because he would not go home. Why did Uriah die? Because he says, I'm going to go back to battle. Why did Uriah die? Because Uriah knew his place. This was the mess that David was in. He had a problem. Now what we learn as we look at 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel 12, that when Joab receives this letter and he opens the letter, Joab follows through with what David said. And the murder of Uriah was complete. So, so far... Four people have been entertained in this idea. We have David and we have Bathsheba. All of which who had opportunity to turn away, none did. We have Joab who received that letter. And Joab knew an innocent man was going to die, but he did not turn back. 
We have Uriah. The only one in this occasion that we read who had integrity and fortitude to serve God. And he is dead and everyone else remains. You have the man, David. You have the moment with Bathsheba. You have the mess with Uriah. By the way, in the things that David could have done, he could have said, Uriah, I have sinned. But he didn't. He made a mess. Let's see some meanings of all of these things together and pull some things together for our lives that we may understand. I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 5. You have David who has murdered a man without even lifting a finger, really. He never put his hand on a knife. He never picked up the sword. But yet Uriah was struck down in the hottest battle so he may die. David was a murderer. I want you to see with me Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You pick up in verse 21 and you read this phrase. We've read it twice tonight now. You have heard that it was said by those of old, you shall not murder, and whosoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. You know what Jesus is saying? Just like he said, do not commit adultery. You've heard that of old. You know what he's saying? Don't murder. Now, you would think, I would think, I think we think, you shouldn't have to tell people that. But I want to ask you a question. How many times do you see murder on the local news? on the national news, on the world stage news. How much do people need to be reminded, don't kill somebody else? Jesus gives that reminder, and even in this occasion, we learn that those of old reminded each other, don't do this or else you'll be in danger of your soul, of judgment. But Jesus says this inside of verse 22, but I say to you, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, I want to tell you something about me that's false. Preachers like to tell the truth. We don't like to tell, tell something that's false. Let me tell you something that's false. You ready? And you tell me if this is true or not. I've never been angry. Now, why are y'all laughing? How many of you have ever been angry? We know this from Scripture, be angry and sin not. Uh, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. We know those passages. And, and we know in our lives we need to control our emotions. We need to control our responses. Sometimes we have to control our faces. That ever happened to you? Before you said anything, you've already said everything that needs to be said. Sometimes we've got to control our faces. But Jesus here says, you've heard from old, don't commit murder. Whoever is angry at his brother without a cause, he'll be in trouble at the judgment. You see, what we're learning about here is it has to do with the heart. And what I find interesting in Matthew chapter 5 is what happens at verse 23. Therefore, if you, get, you bring your gift to the altar... Now pause with me there. Remember, Matthew chapter 5 is pre cross. In other words, it's before the cross ever took place. So we're talking about the Old Testament system of worship. Bring your gift before the altar. Now you and I don't have altars, but let's make an application. Do we ever bring our worship before God? Matthew chapter 5, 23 is for us too. Maybe we have an unjust anger problem that we need to correct. Jesus says our anger 
this concept of murder and hate in the heart, it will defile you before God. Interestingly enough, he says, leave your gift at the altar, verse 24, and go away and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and give your gift. Anger has a lot to do with our lives. For what reason was David mad at Uriah? Had Uriah abandoned the battlefield on his own choice? No, he had not. Uh, was Uriah deliberately defiling the commandments of the king? No, he was not. Uh, had Uriah done something to David before he had left? No, he was one of David's mighty men of valor. What had Uriah done to David? Nothing. What was David? He was angry at Uriah without a cause. And guess what? Jesus says, you've heard it from those long ago, do not commit murder. What happened in the life of David? His anger led him to murder. Go with me next to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. I love 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, not because they're short, but because they are filled with all sorts of scenes that we need to know in our lives. And it's in verse 15 that we read something that I think has great impact to our lives today. 1 John 3, 15. Whoever hates his brother, well, there's big words. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. That just got deep. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You mean if I hate someone, it's as if I use the knife myself. It's as if I gave the command to Joab to kill. You see, when we start making application and we start do, developing some meanings in our lives, we recognize that hatred in our heart towards someone else will always cause problems. There will never be a time, there will never be a day, there will never be a moment when hatred helps. It killed Uriah. And so many others down through the pages of Scripture because mankind had a problem. It happens today. In every scene where you read of murder, something deeper is at play. Maybe it's our own shortcomings that harbor feelings of hatred. Maybe it's our own issues that harbor feelings of hatred. Maybe it's our own dealings that harbor feelings of of hatred. What do we learn in the meetings? Well, in Matthew chapter 5 and 1 John chapter 3, we learn that, boy, there can be some great problems in life. And Jesus tells us that hatred, it's equated to murder. What's our great study tonight? David, who murdered Uriah. Now, unfortunately, we have a bunch of passages on the screen, and I knew this coming into this, and there's no way we tonight could look at all of these passages but these are passages that help us train our minds to know what to do when we're going off in the wrong way. You know what that tells me? God has given us the information to control the heart. You see, tonight's lesson has not just been about, mercy or about murder, it has been about the heart. What was in the heart of David? He was covering up the sins of himself and Bathsheba. And Uriah took the fall for David's sins. 
We learn a couple of things about David, though. We learn in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 3, the heart of David after all these things take place. And in just a moment, we'll know 2 Samuel 12, 23. But in, in Psalm 51, 1 through 3, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, plural. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. I can't guarantee this. But when those other mighty men of valor came home, do you think David thought about Uriah? The next time he saw Bathsheba, you think he thought about Uriah? When he saw that child, do you think he thought about Uriah? My sin is ever before me. A guilty conscience will cause one to think. Now sadly, in our account tonight, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, we learn the fate of this child. This child falls ill. And this child does not succumb or does not overcome these illnesses. It succumbs to death. And this is what we read about David. David has a moment of clarity here. People were asking him why he was up and moving about, why he wasn't lamenting and mourning and wailing and he says, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? The answer is no. And David says, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. When Kelly and I had first gotten married, we went straight to the Memphis School of Preaching. And our first work was in Nolensville, Tennessee. And one Sunday morning, I stood before the congregation and told everyone that Kelly was with child. And let me tell you, you're talking about two excited people. About two weeks later, I received a card in the mail. And I was sitting in my office. What I did not know when we told everyone that Kelly was with child is that seven days later, Kelly would not be with child. Exactly seven days later, I preached my sermon, couldn't even tell you what it was, handed one of the elders a note and said, read this please. And I walked out of the back door of that church building. You know what it read. About three weeks later, I receive a card from Charlie Myers. I grew up around Charlie Myers. If you know anything about Sparta, Tennessee, you know about Charlie Myers. He preached at West Sparta for, I think, 27 or 26 years. He wrote me a card. And he just wrote, remember, he said, remember 2 Samuel 12, 23. David got it. Child can't come back. But David got it, but I can go to him. I want you to remember who David was. David was a king, but David was an adultering murderer. And David finally gets it here. I can go to him. He says, there's nothing I can do to fix what's taken place. And what you and I have seen together is we've seen the man, we've seen the moment, we've seen the mess, and we've seen some meanings that help us see David and murder. But really what we've seen together as our class comes to a close is David and his heart. So to conclude the class, I have one question for you. How is your heart? Thank you so much.